0: I love music. Um, I do. I absolutely love music. Most people do, I would probably venture to say. But it, it's mostly because music can be really powerful, can't it? When you think about the way music um, impacts our life, it's really difficult to go throughout the day and not have some music around us. I, I tend to have my Spotify playlist um, with me almost all the time. When I'm riding the train downtown to the office or we're at home, Lori and I, uh, just yesterday, we were cleaning the house in the morning and we just put on a Spotify playlist and just um, listened to music all morning long. But part of it's because music has such a power over us. You, you think about some of the amazing music that you've encountered in your lifetime and how it tends to sink into your psyche, and so that there are times when you can hear a song and it transports you back to another time and place. You know what I'm talking about? So, like, I remember uh, the first album that I ever owned. Like, I got a record player and I had headphones, it had a cord that went to the record player, but I remember the first album my parents ever bought me for my birthday. It was around 1980, something like that, and the, the album, the, the, the artist was Toto, and the album was Africa. It was an awesome album. I loved that, right? And so that was my first album, and I listened to it over and over and over again. But I also remember some of the other times in my life where, like, in junior high, I remember, I, I mean, I remember, the, I can feel it. Like, I can feel it. Like, being outside in the summer and uh, being in my neighbor's garage, and we're listening to this crazy album, something that we'd never heard anything like it before it was Prince's purple rain. Oh my gosh, it transformed our summer. It was awesome. In fact, it's still, like we still, Lori and I, my wife still love um, Prince so much that this last summer on vacation, we went to Minneapolis and we toured his studio. We stayed for the after hours, after dark dance party and danced with a bunch of people that were old like us. It was awesome. It was so fun. And so, uh, so Prince, but like I remember being in my neighbor's garage because my parents would never have let me buy Prince's Purple Rain, never in a million years. So I remember listening to that album. But there's also songs that just like, if you hear them, it may remind you of heartache. Like you remember breakup songs? Remember those songs? Like mine was uh, the one that, want, if it comes on the radio, if I hear it, like in a department store, my heart sinks. And it just takes me back to uh, my worst high school breakup, right? It was Eternal Flame by the Bengals. It was terrible. I know some of you guys are like, I have no idea who any of those people are. So you can look them up and listen to them on Spotify, and then you'll know how old I am. So it's fine. So there's those moments where you just listen to a song, and you're like, oh my gosh, it just makes me depressed, and it's horrible, and all that kind of stuff. But there's also songs that you can listen to, and it's like it takes you to a really positive place. Like there's, um, there was this one, uh, it's the summer before our, our, our oldest and, and everybody moved out of the house, right? And we're in our backyard in the suburbs when we still live there. And we had a fire pit and all of my, my whole family's musicians, except for me, like they all play instruments and sing and all that kind of stuff. And so we're all sitting in the backyard and we're singing, they're do, we're doing a sing along just with our, our kids, right? Our three kids and my wife and I, and we're singing. And it's this. I have this moment impressed in my mind where we're singing "Head in the Heart." We're singing "Rivers and Roads," and it's just like, oh my gosh! It just takes me back to this really sweet time with my kids. And then there's there's moments that that just take me to a different place. Like when I right now, the song that takes me somewhere else right now is um, uh, it's. Uh, I wrote it down. What is it? I knew it was going to, it's Harvest Moon by Neil Young. It's an old, it's before my time, before, way before my time. It's Neil Young, Harvest Moon. It's such a great song. And you know what it makes me want to do? It makes me want to dance with my wife in the living room. There's just songs, right, that just make an impact on you. You're just like, oh, man, I just love music so much, right? So we're doing this series on why we do certain things at church, and so today we're talking about why do we sing? See, everybody has a different feeling about singing. Not everybody, I understand, loves to sing, right? Especially in public. Like, I think there's actually a really good test that you can, um, you can take or uh, give to your friends to see kind of like people's willingness to sing. It's called the karaoke test, right? Like when you go sing karaoke, there's always, there's about three different uh, categories of people. There's the people that say, no, I'm absolutely not going to sing. I'm, I, and they refuse. They'll sit in the corner. They'll watch everybody else sing, but they refuse to sing. My voice is horrible. I don't want to sing. Right? So they're those folks, right? Then you get the people in the middle who are like, "No, I'm not going to sing. Okay, I'll sing." Right? And then they start singing. And then they, you can't peel the microphone away from them the rest of the night because they sing over and over again. And then there's the people who are just like picking out every song, right? They they want to be like the headliners because they're living out their rock and roll dreams in karaoke, right? Uh, my go-to karaoke song, I'm, I, I know this is going to get recorded, but I'm not ashamed. My go-to karaoke song is Margaritaville. I'm sorry. It's by Jimmy Buffett because it throws people off. They don't expect a pastor to sing Margaritaville. So it's fun. And anyway, so, um, but not everybody likes to sing, right? Not everybody in, in our congregation enjoys singing the same way. Some people are a little... Uh, nervous because they don't particularly like their voice. They, maybe they, they know that they're tone deaf or they just know that they don't have a great voice. But then there's others in our congregation, like this is their favorite day of the week because they cannot wait to get here and sing. They, they want to praise, they want to worship, they're just so excited to be in God's presence and to sing. And so I don't know where you're at in that gamut of, of like, I hate singing or I love singing, but it's why it's really important for us to understand, like, why do we do this congregationally? Like, why do we come every single week and we, we stand and we sing these praise songs and we offer ourselves to the Lord through our voice? Why do we do this? C.S. Lewis, who's not a, uh, like a worship theologian at all, right, had some really interesting things to say about worship, especially in the early days when he first came to faith in Christ. So he was a theist and then became a Christian, right? Gave his heart to Christ, and so he really struggled with congregational singing. He really had a hard time. I, I found this really interesting. He said, what we want to know is whether untrained communal singing is in itself any more edifying than any other popular pleasures. And of this, I am, for one, still wondering. I am still wholly unconvinced. I have often heard this noise. I have sometimes contributed to it. I do not yet seem to have found any evidence that the physical and emotional exhilaration that it produces is necessarily or often of any religious uh, relevance. What I like, and many other laymen chiefly desire in church are fewer, better, and shorter hymns, especially fewer. He's just like, I just don't get it, and I don't like singing, and I think we should sing a lot less, right? It's an interesting thing. Now, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to get to kind of the end where he comes kind of full circle and has a, a much fuller theology of worship. I'm going to come to that towards the end, but I think there are a lot of us who struggle with understanding like how to have a robust theology of singing, like how do we really understand what it means to come together and sing? What is the purpose of it? So what would be a compelling reason for us to sing together? See, it's interesting that there are, there are many who don't like singing in a congregational setting, but, but yet almost all of us do sing, in the shower, right, in the car, at concerts. Lori and I have been to eight concerts just this last year. We love going to concerts, all right? Um, and here's the thing, is that every concert that we go to, when that artist plays the song, right, the song that everybody knows, everyone sings. They're belling out. To, it doesn't matter if, if, if it's a complicated song or if they don't know the words. Like, most people don't even care. They'll just make the words up, right? People sing, And and here's what I found. Mike Cosper, who wrote this book called Rhythms of Grace, uh, which I highly suggest if you're interested in learning about worship and singing, he suggested it doesn't matter how complex the song is or how terrible the singer is. We all sing with passion and energy if there is a situation that we find compelling and inspiring. So what would be compelling enough reason for us to sing together tonight? What's a compelling enough reason for us to sing together tonight and every other Sunday? I'm going to suggest that there's three reasons. and There's far more, but I just want to look at three, and we find them in Psalm 96. Psalm 96, starting with verse 1, it says, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. See, Psalm 96 begins, it's an invitation for all of us. It's a summons that God gives to us to to praise Him. So we're invited into this this awesome opportunity for the whole earth, for every nation to praise the Lord. See, the Lord is the object of our praise. Our, Our praise, we praise Him because of who He is. We praise Him because of His character, because of His works, because of His glory, His power, the works of His hands. And we praise as a response in gratitude. We praise him. We are reminded to praise him because of his salvation, because of his glory, and his marvelous works. It's an invitation that the king of the universe has, has invited us into a place where we can communally, we can come together, and we can worship him and his character and his glory and his works. And it's an awesome invitation that we mere mortals can step into the throne room and offer praise to the king on high. It's an amazing thing that we're invited to praise him, to praise him. We're also invited to sing a new song. It says right there in verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song. This means to have a fresh appreciation for his sovereignty. So we have to ask ourselves, like, what would be, a reason that would merit a new song to give to God. If you were to write a song tonight that you wanted to offer to God as a a praise to Him, what new thing in your life would merit that kind of praise? Think back to this week, this past week, or this past month. What new thing has God done in your life that if you could, if you had the skill, right, or the, the inspiration to sit and to pen a song and to say, Lord, this is a new song out of gratitude, out of praise because of this thing that you've done in my life. It's a new way of appreciating him for who he is. What victory have you won because of God? What way can you praise him? So, Psalm 96 is an invitation to praise, but it also is a command to praise. The New and the Old Testament, uh, we see this as a common theme, this command to praise God. It's a, it, we see it about 250 times throughout Scripture, this command to praise the Lord. These declarative statements. And I just had to be honest with you. Sometimes it's difficult when we, when we talk about um, uh, uh, this uh, command to praise, right? It seems a little self-serving in some ways for God to say 250 times in Scripture, like, I want you to praise me, right? But, but I think the thing to understand is, is it's not just that God is demand it for himself. See, he needs no praise or adoration from us. It's not something that he's waiting for tonight saying, oh, well, I need this because he's somehow he's selfish or self-serving in any way. No, what he's trying to do is reorient our thinking because so many times we get ourselves distracted by the things of this world. There's so many things that distract us. There are external things that will constantly bombard us and, and, and try to tell us that that those things are worthy of praise. We're going to talk about, in just a moment, we're going to talk about um, the things of this world and how they are complete rubbish, right? But God, what he does is in commanding praises, he understands our own human hearts because he knows the propensity that we have to turn our hearts away from him. And so by commanding it over 250 times, it's a, it's a loving reminder to us of like, no, I'm shepherding you back to myself, because the reality is, is that our hearts will always torn against Him. We'll always chase after other things that we'll want to give praise to. And He's saying, no, 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 those things, there is nothing worthy in this world worth praise. Only He and He alone is worthy of that. He understands that our hearts, that there are things pitted against them. There are external things of this world, but we also have a really, a very real enemy. A very real enemy who wants to come and distract us and destroy that kind of praise that, that we need to give to the Lord to give him glory for. But he also knows our own human heart. And so he invites us, but he also commands us to give him praise, and it is rightfully his. It is rightfully his. And so we give it, no matter what the circumstances are, not only with our lives, but also with our lips, not only with our speech, but also in song, we give him praise. It is God's purpose that we should praise him with a whole heart. It is imperative that we regularly remind both ourselves and each other that God truly deserves our praise, that he repeatedly demands our praise, and that he deeply desires our praise. Deeply desires it. But It's not just an invitation. It's not just a command, but it is an expression of delight. C.S. Lewis, again, as he continues to grow in his understanding of worship, writes this. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. He, He goes on to say how frustrating it can be when we delight in something, but we have no way in, in which to express it. He said, it's like discovering a new, a new author and not being able to tell anyone how good he is. It's to suddenly turn the road and, and come upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur while everyone in your car is oblivious to it. It's as though you've heard the best joke that you've heard in forever— and there's no one to tell it to how difficult that is right when we're not able to truly express our praise and our adoration to God see what he's saying is that when we praise him it somehow fulfills the enjoyment that we that we also receive because we're praising him it's like when you were a child and you drew something, you colored a page, right? And you're like, oh, I'm coloring this page for my dad. Like, I, I want to color this page and I'm going, to be as, I'm going to make it the best drawing that I've ever made it. And, and I'm going to give this drawing to my dad as a gift because I want to express to him how much I love him. And so we, we take this drawing and we hand it to our dad. And what does our dad do, right? He says, oh, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is an amazing picture. You did such a good job. This is what God does in our hearts when we offer him praise. So somehow when it fulfills the enjoyment that we have in him, we're able to say, God, thank you so much. I'm offering these praises to you. Like I'm giving them to you. And then somehow God, because he's so generous and loving to us, as a good father that he is. says, oh, thank you. Thank you for praising me. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for pouring your hearts and your lives out to me, to giving me glory and adoration. We want to do that just right now. I want to invite you guys to stand, and Alex and the, and the worship team going to just lead us into a time of praise, that we can just praise and adore God for who he is, for being our good father who, who accepts our gift of praise and fulfills the joy Let's sing together. So we sing so that we can praise. You may be seated. We sing so that we can praise our God who is on high. But we also sing so that we can proclaim. We sing so that we can praise, but we also sing that we can proclaim. In singing, we proclaim the good news of the gospel. By singing, we are proclaiming that there is no other salvation other than from our God. Psalm 96, uh, verse 4 through 6 says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The psalmist knows our hearts so well. He, he knows, again, that natural tendency that we have to search for worth, to search for meaning, to work, uh, search for salvation in our own hands or in the things that are around us. And so he is reminding us through this psalm that all of those things are just worthless idols. And so by seeing, what we're able to do is recalibrate our perspective so that our hearts are in line with God's heart. And so, we need to have the gospel proclaimed over and over again in our hearts so that we can refocus ourselves away from the idols of this world and put our eyes directly on the Lord Himself. Colossians 3, verses 16 through 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness In our hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God and Father through him. Another way of uh, looking at this is when we talk about the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. The other, uh, Another way to transis, uh, translate this is to think about it as the message of Christ, the gospel dwelling in you deeply. So it is his word, but it is the gospel. It's his message that we, we want to be so deep within us. And this is done, as we see in Colossians, it's done by teaching and admonishing. Teaching meaning the, decla- the declaration of God's word. And we do that faithfully every single week. We come our pastors and our teachers come and proclaim the work of God. We proclaim the message of Jesus, his salvation from from this platform every single week. So it's through teaching, but it's also through the admonishing, which means to instruct or correct, perhaps even discipline with warning. But then it says that goes on to say that that we're also to proclaim this message of Christ Through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. That the public proclamation of the word is essential, right, for obtaining all wisdom. That's what the passage says. Through teaching and admonishing, it is for obtaining all wisdom, but it is balanced with singing. I want you to see this very clearly. The Apostle Paul is saying when you look at how a person obtains the fullness of Christ, how we see the gospel dwell deeply in someone's life, it is through the teaching of the word and admonishing, but it is also imbalanced with singing hymns, spiritual songs. That those things are inseparable. In fact, some theologians actually believe. That there is not like a, a comma or a separation between the two, that it actually says that we're to teach and admonish by means of singing spiritual songs and hymns. That is by the means of singing that we actually teach one another. Which makes sense, right? From the Old Testament times, like that's the way it was done. It was done in a way in which we, we sing the psalms over each other, we sing the songs in a corporate worship, and in the singing of those songs and hymns and spiritual songs, it actually is a means by which we teach one another. We admonish one another. It reorients our thinking back to the Lord so that we can hear Him clearly. Regardless of the interpretation, when we sing, we have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel over and over again over our hearts and also the hearts of others. Our songs aren't only meant for God. We can glorify God as we testify to one another about who He is and what He's done. That's the power of singing as we come together congregationally. Like, you can sing on your own, but there's some powers where we gather together, we actually get to sing these songs, the message of Christ, the gospel over each other, over our own hearts, but also over the hearts of each other. It's a powerful thing. I've talked before uh, in this setting about um, a couple of years ago when I, I went through an incredibly difficult spiritual time. Where you know I've I've talked about this this time a couple of years ago, where I just I wasn't praying, I wasn't reading the scripture. I felt as far away from God as you could probably feel, Um, and I refer to it as as many have right Um, as like the dark night of the soul. Like it was the deepest, darkest place um, that I've experienced spiritually. And there were times when I would come to worship, and I could not make myself singing. Have you ever been there before where you come to worship me and you're just like, I just can't do this tonight. I just can't utter these words. And it didn't necessarily mean that I didn't believe them. It's just my heart just couldn't do it. My tongue could not utter the words of praise or adoration to God because I was such in a dark place. Let me tell you, the amazing thing that happens, though, when you're in that place right? And, and for those of you that aren't, that are you're in a really great place spiritually, here's the benefit of coming together and singing those things, is that when you sing those songs, you're singing sometimes when other people can't, and you're singing it over them. There, there was one song in particular during that dark night of the soul that I had that for whatever reason, God used in a really powerful way. And it wasn't because I could sing it, it's because other people around me could sing it. And the words just continued to minister to my heart over and over again. It was, it was the song, um, Come to the Altar. And, and here's some of the words, and these are the words that minister to me Leave Be behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how desperately I needed to have those songs that song sung over me. It was a balm to me. It was it was what God intended to use to minister to my heart and my soul when I couldn't worship. Let me tell you, friends, when we worship together, we sing the song, we sing these songs, these gospel songs. And it's and it's there like God's designed it to minister to our hearts. Yes, it is to glorify and to praise Him, but it is also to to remind us of the goodness of the gospel. And we so desperately need to be reminded of it, don't we? We desperately need to be reminded of it. And so singing is such a powerful way of doing that. and here in a moment, we're going to sing a gospel song. Like, um, Alex and the band are going to lead us here in just a second. And, and we're going to sing this gospel song to remind us of the gospel and to remind our own hearts, but perhaps even tonight, to remind some of you here sitting tonight who feel like you're in a very dark place when you perhaps can't utter the words that the gospel is true and it is good. Let me just say, too, if, if you are not a follower of Christ… Um, sometimes these, singing these songs can feel quite odd. I, I get that. I understand that. Um, you may actually, you know, join in, but, but perhaps you don't even believe what these words are. And, and let me just tell you, that's okay. It's okay. Like this, singing these songs together perhaps may be the way in which God is, is using his word to teach and admonish you to get to the very heart and soul of who you are. Maybe some of the words that we're going to sing even tonight maybe a way in which God is ministering to you and, and maybe you're, you're resistant to him and you're like, I, I don't want to sing these songs, I'm not sure I believe them. Perhaps God can use worship and singing as a way in which to help bring you some new perspective to help melt the hardness in your heart, the resistance that maybe you feel. And doing so, perhaps tonight you'll hear the good news that Jesus has done the work on your behalf. He paid the price for your sin and shame, and what was once judgment against you can now be freedom. can now be freedom for you. Forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. Maybe singing these words tonight, maybe it's a time where you're just going to confess, and you're like, I'm not sure I believe this, but I want to believe. Help my heart to believe these things. For those of you who are followers of Christ, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing these gospel, this gospel song over your hearts and over the hearts of those around you. So I wanna invite you to stand and let's sing together. We sing so that we can proclaim that good news. I'm going to invite you to be seated. So we sing so that we can praise. We sing so that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus over our hearts and the hearts of others, but we also sing so that we can practice. One of my favorite days in grade school was when um, the high school orchestra would come, I remember in fourth and fifth grade, <clears throat> the entire orchestra, the brass and the symphony, or the uh, strings would all come uh, to our grade school, and so they would have all of us grade school kids sit on the floor, on the gym floor, and an orchestra would be set up. They, they would do this every year, but I remember my fourth and fr- fifth grade year when they came. And uh, they would play the same concert year after year. It was the same thing. It was about 30 minutes, and the, the concert that they would play was uh, Peter and the Wolf. You guys know that? I don't know if you if you know that, um, but the reason they did it is because they could highlight uh, all the different instruments. And so, um, if you remember Peter, um, he was uh, his the, the instrument that signified uh, Peter was the violins, and then the wolf was um, signified by the uh, French horns. Three French horns would play, uh, which is terrible because my wife's a French horn player and so she got always got cast in the bad in the bad French horn for, for the wolf, right? And the flute was the bird and the ducks were the clarinet and so on and so on, right? And so uh they would the entire uh, orchestra from the high school would play and it was magnificent and everyone was in awe by all these big high school kids and we would sit there. Well, here's the other thing that would happen that exact same day. And I I remember it very vividly my fifth grade year because um, along with the high school orchestra um, would also be our grade school music teacher and then also a instrument salesman would be there the same day, right? They're highlighting all these instruments. And so what they would do in all these different classrooms is they would set up the instruments and then the fourth and fifth graders get to file through and we get to touch and play all the instruments, it was like the worst day for any parent, right because what would happen is then all the kids would go home with an order form and say, "I want to play this instrument because they've just heard the high school orchestra play this and so it was really smart actually great gate sales kind of deal right and so I remember my my fourth or fifth grade year, I went running home begging my parents that that I wanted to play an instrument and I had my order form um, and so I got my, well really it was my second choice instrument. My first choice um, was to conduct the orchestra and they said that they wouldn't let me do that in fourth grade. So that was kind of a bummer for me if that explains a little bit about my personality. But um, yeah, I just wanted to conduct the orchestra. I didn't really wanna play an instrument, I wanted to conduct. But I took my second choice, right? Which was um, the violin. I really wanted to play the violin. I thought it was gonna be awesome, right? And so, um, let me just tell you, it was not awesome. I got that thing home and would sit on my bed, and it was excruciating, right? If you've ever listened to a fourth or fifth grade kid play the violin before, like for the first time, it's like that, right? And the first song you play is like, Mary had a little lamb, and so. Like, I must have driven my parents absolutely insane trying to learn how to play Mary Had a Little Lamb as I eked it out on the, on the violin. About two years into it, I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore, and, um, and I gave the violin up for life. And, so, and I've never picked up one again. Um, anyway, um, no, it's, it's better for everyone that I didn't. The problem was this. Here's the problem, as a, as a fifth grade student, eking out Mary had a little lamb, the problem was is that I had just listened to the orchestra play Peter and the Wolf. In all of their majesty, I get to listen to this orchestra play and here I am in my bedroom and I'm trying to figure out how to play the most basic tune and I couldn't figure it out. What I really wanted would just sound like them that's what I wanted I just wanted to move all the way from fourth grade to high school and skip all the practice in between because I just wanted to play with that orchestra because it was magnificent (laughs) like it was like as as a kid like I've never heard anything like it the strings and the brass and the drums and everything coming together it was just the most amazing sound just amazing sound and there's just that disappointment of, I'm just, I just can't play like that. So I think our hearts are much like that here on earth. I think we try to eke out a sound, right, in our worship, in our singing, and the problem is that what we're waiting for is the symphony. C.S. Lewis actually later in his life I borrowed some imagery from poet John Donne and Lewis reminds us that our earthly worship is merely tuning our instruments. That our, worth, our earthly worship is just tuning our instruments. If you've ever been to a symphony where they, where they right before they, they get ready to actually play, like they all tune their instruments and get it ready, like it doesn't really sound all that great, right? It's just tuning of instruments. The tuning up of an orchestra is delightful only for those who anticipate the symphony. The tuning up of an orchestra is delightful only for those who anticipate the symphony. See, at the end of Psalm 96, the psalmist actually helps us point us forward to the day of the Lord when he's coming. It says, Then. Shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, uh, before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. See, the Psalms has pointed us forward to a day when the Grand Symphony plays and reminds us that this time here on earth, we're just tuning our instruments. We're practicing. Like when we pray, when we sing together, we're practicing, we're tuning our hearts and our our minds and our bodies towards that grand day when we get to stand before Jesus and and in the grand symphony we are offering all of our praise and worship. Revelation chapter 7 actually helps us to to get a picture of what this, this time may be. It says, After I looked, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes. blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, it helps point our hearts to something much grander than what we can experience to this earth. And so, when we sing, we actually get to practice what we get to experience when we get in heaven, when we worship. It's a magnificent thing when we're invited to come together as a body of Christ, to sing. And yes, it sounds sometimes like we're just tuning up. Like it doesn't always sound great, right? Especially when you're singing on your own or, you know, whatever. But, but when we come together, we actually get to practice and participate in what God is inviting us to in heaven. In a moment, we're going we're gonna to stand and sing our last song for tonight as we um, bring our worship service to a close. And we want to sing... A song of looking forward, as we practice and prepare our hearts and our minds for that grand symphony together. I mentioned a a poem that uh, C.S. Lewis borrowed from. It's a poem from John Donne. As he's looking forward, he's in his, he's on his deathbed, and he's looking forward to this glorious day. And he writes this. He said, "Since I am coming to that holy room with." Wherewith that choir of saints forevermore I shall be made thy music as I come. I tune the instrument here at the door and what I must do then think here before. Let's stand and worship together.